is the best game you can name. And the best game you can name is the good old hockey game. Oh, the good old hockey game is the best game you can name. And the best game you can name is the good old hockey game. Hey, Nailers fans, it's DJ Abacella with another edition of The Toolbox, presented to you by Coors Light, the beer that's made to chill. A couple of weeks ago, we made one of our biggest announcements of the summer thus far. We have a head coach to guide us through the 2021 season. It's Mark French, and I'm happy to bring Mark along with me today. Mark, how's the first week or so been on the job? Did a lot of people reach out to you? I know you haven't had a chance to come to Wheeling yet, but I'm sure you dove in feet first all the way. Yeah, I mean everybody's been been great. You get hired, and there's there's a lot of phone calls and a lot of emails, which is really a, a good sign. It makes you feel at home, and and makes you feel like you're a part of something. But in addition, there was you know certainly some things in the league that needed to be taken care of, especially with the uh, the futures trade deadline that was the end of last week. So kind of really got thrust into the job right away, and. It was a quick study of trying to figure out uh, the players and, and the league a little bit. So certainly jumped in with both feet. That futures deadline, too, that's a really unique scenario in this league. I don't think there's a lot of sports or leagues that have something with it. And the way that I was interpreting it and watching everything unfold, there were some of the deals like being able to get Chad Duchesne where you had a chance to kind of pick and choose where you wanted to go. And then other scenarios like Nick Saraceno going to South Carolina, that one was pretty much already designed where you didn't really have much that you could do with it. What was that experience like? Yeah, no, you're right. I think uh, trying to know the particulars of the of the deal was important because some of them were mutual that both teams had to uh, agree on on the player. Um, or like you mentioned in the, in the the two deals, the one where we got Chad Duchesne, there was more of a that they were allowed to protect so many players, and we were able to pick from a list. And then the one with with Nick Saraceno, with him going to South Carolina, there was uh, again very little that we we could do on that one. That was basically their option to take that player. So there was different little intricacies and details of each of those trades that made them a little bit different. So again, it was just trying to familiarize yourself with those and try to make the best decisions going forward. As you look to start building this year's roster and players are going to come from all different places, what kind of steps do you take? How much do you look at what Wheeling had last year, look at players from around the league or from the AHL, also looking at some players potentially from college, major, junior, CIS? All of it. And at times it can feel overwhelming, but you really want to really tap into all those leagues. So I think first and foremost for me, it was getting uh, comfortable with the roster from last season, uh, understanding who those players were, doing your homework to have people who had eyes on them to give you the best evaluations you could so you could evaluate what you had. And then utilizing Pittsburgh in terms of some of their players and, and talking to them about what they saw for those players. And then getting to understand the league and certain guys that may may not become available. And then diving into the young players, the NCAA, the CIS from a university standpoint, and then Canadian Major Junior. There's a lot of players, but uh, developing those recruiting lists, starting to make calls to whether it's agents or coaches and doing those reference checks. Those are things that have to happen, and, and that's really taken up a lot of my time this week is to really try to get those lists and to start formalizing a, a game plan. 
One of the most popular questions I hear when a new coach gets put in a new place is what their style of play is going to be. And I feel like the hockey world as a whole is designed completely around speed in this day and age. But Mm -hmm. I really appreciated a conversation that you and I had when you first got hired and you talked about how, yes, speed is a big part of it, but you also have a value on being able to play different styles and having different players succeed in a lot of different assets. What about that? Yeah, like for, for me, the way I kind of look at things is I think it's important to ha- as a coach and for a team to have a foundation of you what you want to be built on. And, and for me, it's effort. Teams that are willing to make sacrifices as a group. Teams that are humble and show humility and, and communicate well with each other. So for me, those are foundation points. And they should be there on, on any successful team I've been a part of. They seem to be the, the building blocks for a really good team. But when you talk about team play trademarks, you know, I love the way the St. Louis Blues played. And when they won the Stanley Cup, they played a heavy game and they were hard to play against. They were tenacious on the forward check. They really made that style work. But with that, they had a bunch of heavy players that could execute that style. I would love to play that way, but you need those players to be able to execute that. So for me, it's a little bit having an idea of things that you think will make a team successful from a team play identity, but then really tailoring it to the, the strengths of your group. And I think that's, that's an important part. If you want a team to play heavy, but you don't have the players, it's probably not going to work. If you want to play a real skilled fast game and you have the more plumbers and some big guys, then you're probably barking up the wrong tree there. So I think it's important to know what values you want, but almost let the team decide to some degree what trademarks it's going to really hang its hat on. You mentioned playing the guy's strengths, which is obviously a big key. How much also goes into trying to get players maybe a little bit out of their comfort zone, whether it's to help the team or potentially help them get noticed and move up to a higher level at the same time? Yeah, and I I really think, DJ, that's a big part of coaching. I think that's the job of the coach is to get them out of that comfort zone, to push them to a different level. I think I've had some really good players that I've been able to coach who've had outstanding work ethics, but still the difference between them finding their their best self was being able to push them outside of that comfort zone and getting them to realize maybe there was a little bit more that they could do, a little bit more they could add to their repertoire and to their game, um, maybe a different way of looking at things. But I think getting out of the comfort zone as a player and what they've known is, is a big part of trying to reach the potential of a team and a player. I want to switch gears a little bit, start to learn about you, the person. We got a chance to see you on the Zoom interview when we introduced you at the press conference. You're married, you have a daughter and a son. Are they both hockey players? They are. Yeah, no, we, I tried hard with, with the first, my daughter, to get her into figure skating, but uh, that lasted about a year, and she was begging to play hockey, so we let her do that, and uh, no, she plays, she loves it. And she always has. And, you know, the one thing uh, about her that I give her a lot of credit for, she's had to do it in a lot of different places. She's played with girls. She's played with all boys teams. She's played in uh, situations where she didn't even know the language. But her love for the game has always kept her in it. So I've been really proud of her from that standpoint that, uh, you know, it's something that she's found and uh, that she really enjoys. I was going to ask you about moving around. So they've gone with you. What's that been like? Because it's not like they're just going to a city three hours away or another state or another province. You're going international sometimes. Yeah, you might have to ask them that question. I think it's been great for them, but not without its challenges. I think 
you know, the biggest challenge we had is when we're, we're going over to Europe, especially going into Switzerland, because both our children were school age, and they didn't have the opportunity to go into an international school. They just went into a, a local Swiss school that was a French-speaking school. Neither of the, the kids knew any French whatsoever. So they were kind of thrown right into the fire, but they came out of it. And they, you know, now they're fluent in French and German, where it's a great tool to have going forward. But, you know, I think there's been some really great parts about the travel, but some real challenging parts too. But uh, the one nice part about it is we've been able to stay together as a family and experience a lot of these things together. How many languages do you know? Are you fluent in any others besides English? Well, that's the funny part. None. I mean, we spent two years in Freiburg, and that was a mainly French area. And you pick up a little bit, but my extent of French was, was, is still very poor. You're from Milton, Ontario originally, so immediately the first stereotype that people will say is, oh, he's from Canada. He was born with a hockey stick in his hands. So how old were you when you started skating and then ultimately started playing hockey? Yeah, I mean, right away. I mean, my dad had the prototypical outdoor ring, and it became a part of my life very early. So, you know, three, four, five, you know, definitely was out on the outdoor rinks and ponds, and then in organized hockey as soon as I was able to. So that's a great part of growing up uh, at that time. It was just something that uh, you didn't even think about doing. It was just a part of your life and your lifestyle. So it certainly started with that passion, and, uh, you know, it was something that's always been a big part of my life. Were your allegiances within the province? Were you a Maple Leafs fan? You know what? Buffalo Sabres. Oh, wow. Uh, they were pretty good at that time. They had Gilbert Perot, Don Edwards, Bob Sauve, and Rick Martin. They were some good teams. And, you know, I don't know. My dad was a big Toronto Maple Leafs fan. So because they were so close down the highway, I'm not so sure there wasn't a little bit of uh, trying to divide the house a little bit. But funny thing in later years, I think I started supporting the Leafs when they had some success in the 90s. But initially, I was a, a big Buffalo Sabres fan. Gotcha. Did you play any other sports growing up or do any other fun activities to keep you occupied? No, I played baseball during the summers. But, you know, it was funny. Uh, once hockey started to, to become a little bit more of a 12-month sport and playing summer hockey and stuff, the baseball kind of fell off to the wayside. But, uh, no, certainly enjoyed doing other, other sports. But hockey seemed to always have the, the precedent. What about now? Do you have any other hobbies that you like, whether it's outdoors or are you big on Netflix or any of that? I should, but with the kids, with the age they were, it was it was more when you had some time away from work, it was spending time with them, whether it was uh, going to do some hockey shots with them or taking the dog for a walk with them. You know, the, those hobbies and stuff, I think I'll probably try to pick up some of those things once uh, they grow up, but to be honest with you, it was it was about work, and then when you weren't working, it was about trying to spend some quality time with the family. Very good. You went to school at Brock University, which is in Canada. What did you study there? I studied psychology, and uh, you know, like everybody, I took a four-year degree in psychology, and I'm certainly not using it, or I'm not in the psychology field. But I think there was a number of things I learned during that time that. Uh, you know, helped me along in the in the coaching career, but I always had a hunger to learn, and I think that was the main thing. And I kind of kept that as coaching that those learning experiences and that hunger to try and find a, a better way has always been something that uh, I've really enjoyed. So, and I think that started early with with the education. It's amazing how mental the sports are now, and you have to understand what makes your players tick and just really what they're feeling. So I feel like psychology is almost one of the most valuable degrees that you could possibly have in a coaching capacity right now. 
Yeah, I think that understanding. I mean, I think psychology, like any avenue, has really changed, and uh, with with every different generation, I'm sure there's been different psychological ways to analyze it. But for me, it's that hunger for learning that that's always been a constant, and really trying to find the newest and, and the best ways of approaching a subject. But uh, you know, I think you're right. I think communication and trying to find the best out of people is obviously a huge part of coaching. It probably was before, but even more so now. You went pretty well right from your playing days into coaching. Was that something that you had kind of paved out and that you wanted to dive right into it, or how did it happen so quickly? I had started my master's degree at Brock and uh, wanted to get into the coaching as well. I was doing starting my master's in sports psychology, and so I did one year doing that, and then the second year, uh, the head coach of the team I was coaching at Brock, he left late in the season and they they named me interim coach and at that point in time I dropped all my (laughs) academic studies and uh, threw all my my bets into coaching so um, it kind of stopped there and that kind of started me on on a real good journey. It led you to some work in Canada with CIS in the OHL and then in 2004 you become an assistant coach in the ECHL with the Atlantic City Boardwalk Bullies and you were the assistant coach under Matt Thomas, who is now going to be a division rival this year with the Cincinnati Cyclones. How much fun is that going to be to go head-to-head against him? Well, Matt is about the most entertaining person I know. He's got a great personality. He's always enthusiastic. He's always fired up. So I, I enjoyed my time with Matt. It was kind of my first dive into professional hockey, and he gave me the opportunity, and we, we were able to build a great relationship there and, and continue to have that relationship. And he was a, a real big sounding board for me when, when we were trying to decide what was our next avenue, and he's a, certainly a big advocate of the ECHL and the division. But he'll be a challenging, he's, he's a good coach, and he'll have a challenging team to play for sure. 15 years is a somewhat decent sample size in the hockey world. You haven't been in the league since then. What do you think is going to be the biggest difference from what you saw in the league then to how the league's operating and playing now? Uh, no, DJ, that's a really good question. I think the one thing that strikes me about the North American minor league is the youth of it to some degree, which I think is good. But I, I think if I remember back in my ECHL days, uh, the players I probably remember the most were some of the, the hardened veterans that uh, had really defined certain franchises in the ECHL. And not that there's not teams that have that, they, they still do, but maybe to, to maybe a little bit more of a smaller degree. I think the challenge of the ECHL probably is somewhat the same. I think anytime you're having a, a lot of roster changes and a lot of movement, trying to create that foundation and that, that real identity about what you're standing for at the ECHL level, I think is, is a huge challenge. But I think the teams that do that well and are able to handle the call-ups, the injuries, the turnover of their rosters are ultimately the ones that can face that adversity and get through it the right way and, uh, and become successful. So I think, again, it, it's that unpredictability of, of your roster from day to day, which I think is a huge challenge. I went back and did the research on it. That Atlantic City team played in Wheeling five times during the 0405 season, and you got all but one possible point against us. You went 4-0-1. What do you remember from your trips to Wheeling, and what are you most looking forward to seeing based on what folks have told you in the last few weeks? Well, if I, 
if I remember correctly, they, there was a few things I remember at that team. One, I believe Danny Savern was the goalie, and uh, he, he was one of the best in the league. So that he was always formidable there. And I remember a player named Pascal Morency, who was, was a bit of an agitating player. So those were the two names that really stuck out for me. Uh, Morency, because he, he had a pretty good career in the ECHL and the American League, but was always one of those guys that uh, seemed to get a, a thorn in your tail and uh, and make the game entertaining. So I remember that. I remember Pat Bengen being the coach, and they were a real honest, hardworking team. And I think that kind of shaped my idea of, of what winning was at that time, a tough place to play. Um, a little bit smaller ice surface, but with with passionate and loyal fans, and that's I think the same thing I'm looking for when I when I'm going back. Obviously, and talking with uh, Don and Brian with with the Nailers and with Pittsburgh, I know there's been some upgrades to the building. But for me, it's it's it, having the opportunity to get there and really start building and doing what uh, what all coaches love to do. From Atlantic City on to Wichita, your first pro head coaching gig, and it was in the CHL. Was the structure of the CHL then kind of similar to what the ECHL is now in terms of your role in recruiting players? Yes, yeah, and that was kind of the first opportunity that I had to really dive into into that side. I, I certainly had aided Matt a little bit in terms of recruiting players and had done some in in uh, major junior in Canada and in college in Canada, but you're we're dealing with a different pool of players um, and the day-to-day management. So that was kind of the first opportunity. I think the, at that time, the Central League was probably a lot older than what the ECHL was. There was really established players within each franchise and guys who had been there for, for years and were able to make them successful. But you were, you were dealing with a, generally an older group. From Wichita on to Hershey, your second year there as an assistant coach, you won a Calder Cup, and then after that, they turned the reins over to you. How excited were yeah. you to have all that talent on your team, but at the same time, was there any pressure with them having won the year before as to expectations you might have to live up to? You know, the, the first year I was there with Bob Woods as an assistant, that was really a, a real special season. Uh, Hershey was such an historical franchise, such a tradition of, of success. We knew going into that season that uh, after some off-season moves, and especially acquiring some key veteran guys like Keith Coin, Brian Helmer, two guys that really helped shape the leadership group of what we were doing in Hershey, we knew it would be a good team. And it took a while for it to develop that year. I think it was probably about Christmas time that we start to fire on all cylinders. And by the time we hit the playoffs, we played Wilkes-Barre in the seven-game series and we were able to win game seven, which was probably the biggest competition we had and once we got through that, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't fate to complete that we were going to win the Calder Cup, but we knew we had a pretty good chance. And then the following year, we actually probably had a better team. Um, we had some younger players that played roles on the first Calder Cup team, but were really hungry to play bigger roles. And uh, guys like Matthew Perot and Jay Beagle were able to step up and, and, and really, really take that team on the shoulders. And we were probably a more skilled group that year. And that year was we didn't have much adversity to be honest with you we we had a real good team that stayed motivated throughout the whole season and we really didn't find any adversity until we reached uh, the finals and we lost the first two games at home to texas and we you know you kind of had your back against the wall in a seven game series going in there for three but the the quality and leadership of the group really pulled it out and we won three in a row in texas and then finished her off with a win at home to win the calder cup so there was a lot of expectations that year but at the same time you know there was probably no stress on the situation because you knew you were equipped with uh, some great leadership and some truly great players 
that Wilkes-Barre series you mentioned too, you guys trailed in that series three games to two, so you had backs against the wall in six right. and then a winner-take-all game seven, so that was probably quite the challenge. Was that one of the aspects you mentioned, fighting the adversity, that you were most impressed with or that you're most proud of from either of those two years, or were there other things that really stuck out to you? No, I think those moments, you, you know, you go through the regular season. And for me, it's always in the response of a team. And, and even during the regular season, we, we might have, I remember one game we played in Worcester and we got beat pretty bad in, in the, our 60-win season. And unfortunately from Worcester, we played them again a week later at home. And, and it was just one of those things you knew, like, watch out, your team's going to, like, they're going to come out and it's going to be a bad night for Worcester. And it, it certainly was. So you always knew that even if there was a bad moment, they were going to respond. And, and it was the same in the Wilkes-Barre series or in the next year in Texas that uh, truly when their backs were to the wall, you were going to get a, a thunderous response. And I think that's a real good quality of, of any championship team is you know when you're forced with that adversity you just know how your people are going to respond fans want to win there's no question about that so sometimes when you throw the d word in development it scares people because they understand that young players may go through growing pains or some of their favorite top players may get plucked away with them but when you look at those two calder cup champion teams in hershey how beneficial was it to the development process to have those wins and also have it parlay into the capitals having later success down the road yeah, I think it was huge, DJ. Like, I think you can do both things. And I think as an organization, you should want your minor league affiliates to experience success because I think success is a huge part of development. And I really enjoyed that with the relationship between Washington and Hershey. That that was certainly at a premium that, uh, yes, contract mattered and draft status, all that stuff mattered. But ultimately, they wanted the players who were earning their ice time, who were earning their situational play to be the ones to get rewarded. And I think that was a real good message to send throughout the organization. But I think that development really led to creating a, a situation in Washington that they were able to, to propel. I also think of the times where Washington played Montreal in, in the first round and got upset by Montreal. It, that was in our second Calder Cup year, and we were the benefit of getting John Carlson and Carl Alsner assigned back to us. I'm not sure we win the Calder Cup without Washington getting put out in the first rounding and getting those two players. So it's a little bit of both, but I think there there can be a really good combination and understanding that a big part of development should be a winning and real positive environment. Timing is everything. I'll tell you that from right here. When we went to the finals in 2016, the fact that Wilkes-Barre bowed out in the second round, we got guys back. That was definitely yeah. a big part of it. Pittsburgh and Washington, sure. seems like they're pretty well tied together in almost all NHL conversations because, well, Sidney Crosby, Alex Ovechkin, so the last decade or so. Do you see similarities in the way that the two organizations operate down to the minors? Yeah, I mean, I think that was, I think when we were being successful in Hershey, it fueled Wilkes-Barre to, to want to get better. And I remember after the year after we won the, the Calder Cup, John Hines came into to Wilkes-Barre. I think Pittsburgh and Wilkes-Barre made some really good signings. And that next year, it was almost like they felt they needed to propel themselves to kind of knock us off the off the pedestal. And, and I think it kind of went both ways a little bit. But I think the success of both franchises with energized fan bases, with, with real good NHL affiliations at the American level, I think it really had a way to, to fuel them. You know, I know from Hershey's end of things that that was certainly the the biggest rival. And uh, when you had Dennis Bond coming in and, and some guys like that from, from Wilkes-Barre, I think certainly the fans were ready for those games. 
Before we jump to your time in Europe, you also spent three years with the Calgary Hitmen in the Western Hockey League. And we talked about psychology earlier, so this fascinates me. What was it like going from dealing with adults, pros, possibly even in their 30s in the AHL to going to Major Junior and dealing with 16 to 20-year-old kids? You know what? It's a, it's the Canadian Hockey League is a, is a great league. The Western Hockey League, uh, I, I think it, I'm biased. I think it's the best of the three. And, and the Calgary Hitman franchise is, is one of the elite franchises in Canadian hockey. But you're right. After spending so much time in, in pro, it was a sizable adjustment to coaching younger players. In pro, oftentimes through pre-scouting and through your practice preparation, you're looking for those minute details that will help you win the next game and to, to build your game. Really, at the junior level, you're trying to develop men. And uh, you've got guys who don't understand how to practice, who don't know how to work off the ice in the weight room and need to be babysat a little bit off the ice. So it, it took more of a fatherly role, and it was kind of changing some of your thoughts of what was important in coaching and kind of had to reshape them on the fly of what was really important in, in coaching the junior player. Now we'll go to Europe. You coached in Croatia and Switzerland. The hockey part of it's cool, but I want to know about the countries and what it's like to experience life abroad. Yeah, I mean, our first experience in Croatia and then in the KHL, for me it was uh, the, the KHL is an unbelievable league with, uh, with, with scary skill. And, and for me as a North American guy, we, you know, you'd get the roster of the team and you'd recognize a few of the Russian players that had played in North America and you would value them because of what they had done over here. What really surprised me was the quality of the players that I had no idea who they were, that they were just players who had been in Russia their whole career and the skill level that they had is what really, really surprised me. And, and in some respects, the, the franchises and the history of the, of the franchise is going to play CSKA in Moscow. The old Red Army team uh, in their facility certainly brought back memories of watching them play, coming over and playing in, in North America against NHL teams. For me, that his, history was, was, was a real cool part of it. But as well for me, coaching against Russian coaches, Czech coaches, Swedish coaches, Finnish coaches, it really forced you to, to see the game in a different fashion and was a unique challenge as, as a coach. But Croatia itself was a beautiful country, and any time that uh, I wasn't in Russia with the family we got to experience uh the coast of croatia which is uh probably one of the most beautiful places in the world were there any other places that you got to go where you had it marked as a bucket list destination and really jumped out at you whether because it had some famous landmarks or just absolutely beautiful yeah, after our first year in Switzerland, we, we decided to stay in Europe for the summer and we decided to go to uh, northern France for the month. And uh, we spent most of our time in, in Normandy, France, and we got to tour Vimy Ridge, which is uh, the D-Day uh, memorial for the Canadian troops that were a part of the Second World War uh, D-Day invasion. Um, so for me, that was, I enjoy history and, and those things, but being able to take the kids and expose them to that history was, was a unique experience. And just the northern France area was something that uh, we won't forget as a family, being able to experience that. So we had some once-in-a-life moments that way and, and things that I, I hope that our kids learned and will we'll cherish throughout their life. 
one of the things that fans tend to enjoy here, I do on Twitter when we're on the road, I do a thing called Dining with Deej where I take yeah. pictures of the different foods from the places that I eat around the league. How was the food overseas? I bet you there had to be some really <laughs> tasty spots. Yeah, no, I think in, in, in Normandy and in the Croatian coast, you know, obviously seafood was at a premium, but and even living in Prince Edward Island now, uh, going through lobster season, the seafood is, is outstanding, but I don't eat any of it. So through all those times um, and all those great locations on, on different coastal cities, I didn't even try a little bit of it. So my, my family was able to, but I, I stuck to the, to the basics pretty well. So what's your go-to meal then? Yeah, you don't get me far from a steak. That's probably, if I have my benefit, I, I would take a, a good steak from somewhere for sure. That's fantastic. Okay, so I guess we're going to a steak dinner the first time you get down <laughs> here then. Is there anything else that you want to cover before I let you go? No, just, again, uh, for, for me, there's a real excitement uh, about coaching professional hockey again in North America. Time go, goes fast. But again, I think uh, we're look, really looking forward to our time of uh, moving back south. We had some uh, great memories of living in the States, whether it be Wichita or, or Hershey, and we're looking forward to having that experience again. I can't wait to get a chance to meet you in person for the first time. I can't thank you enough for all the great work that you've done with us in the media already. I know that the fans are all excited to meet you too, so hopefully everything can get cleared up quickly and we can get this ball rolling to what is sure to be a fun season ahead. No, I agree, DJ. I'm, I think everybody's looking forward to get there and get the season rolling, and I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to get back behind the bench. Huge thanks to our new head coach, Mark French, for joining me on today's episode of The Toolbox. It's great to be able to get to know the folks in our organization on a personal level, what drives them every day, the passion that they have with their family and also with the job that they're doing. And I know that Mark is going to work so hard to be able to put a winning product on the ice here in Wheeling. So great job by him on the interview and can't wait to get those signings churned out as the summer goes along. Make sure that you are following us on all of our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for all the latest on the Wheeling Nailers. Also subscribe to our newsletter and be visiting wheelingnailers.com. This has been another edition of the Toolbox presented by Coors Light, the beer that's made to chill. I'm DJ Abacella. We'll talk to you next time. 